Hello, I'm Olivia Braffman and welcome to If She Can, I Can, the podcast that aims to edge all of us ambitious women that little bit closer to navigating how on earth we get the high-flying career we love and have kids without totally burning yourself out and challenges the role society thinks we're supposed to play in it all. How? By talking each week to inspiring women who have proven the statistic wrong and have done just that. Let's get into it. I am beyond honoured to have the Annabelle Carmel join me today. If you have children, she needs no introduction, having created what can only be described as a child food revolution. Recognised as one of the leading female entrepreneurs of today and with an MBE for her incredible work in the field of child nutrition, Annabelle has paved the way globally over the last 30 years for how families feed their kids through her best-selling 47 recipe and cookbooks, her ready-to-go meals, and her new baby and toddler feeding app. They say some of the most pivotal changes in your life often happen after you go through the toughest of times. And that is sadly true for Annabelle. Her business was started as a legacy to her first child, Natasha, who tragically died from a viral infection at just three months old. What a legacy it is that you have created. Annabelle, a huge welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So you've dedicated your career to supporting babies and kids through your work. I want to go way back to baby Annabelle. What was life like for you growing up and how do you think that made you into the woman that you are today? Well, interestingly, I was a terrible eater for a start. My mother, like I would not take whatever formula milk. I think she breastfed me to begin with. Then the doctor said, give me carnation milk, you know, from a tin. I mean, I wasn't even one by that age, so I don't know. That was terrible advice. (laughs) Anyway, it seemed to work and I like that because it's very sweet. And growing up, I was... Yeah, I like pasta and potato and not much else. And I remember my mother took me to hospital and like then she decided like I was gonna be force fed, so she took me home again. So food has always been uppermost in my mind. Now I'm a I love food. I'm obsessed with food. I think about food the whole time. I eat huge amounts of food. I spend, you know, ages like thinking about how to develop recipes. Yeah, that bad eater turned into somebody who kind of made a career out of food, which is so odd really. But that was my start. And I suppose in a way, like if I'd had a good eater, I would never have had my career because I would have thought my babies just open and shut their mouths and eat. So maybe my experience as a child kind of led to this career in some weird way. And growing up, I think I had a, a pretty loving family, but it was quite unstable, which I'll, I'll come to because I think, you know, talking about my parents, it was not easy. Mm. So what did your parents do? What do you think you were seeing in them and maybe other role models in your life that filtered down into who you became? I think it's really what happened uh, with my parents. We had a reasonably good life. And then I think we were on holiday somewhere. My father's business wasn't doing well and he was forced to close it down. My mother had become a housewife looking after two children. I have a brother and we had to come back. We'd only been on holiday for about two days. I remember she bought us a dog called Charlie, a Yorkshire Terrier, to sort of make up for the fact that we didn't really have a holiday. And my father had kind of a nervous breakdown. I didn't really understand what was going on, but I knew it wasn't right and it was just really difficult at home. My mother had to think, like, what am I going to do now? How am I going to support? I've got two children. You know, I was an architect, don't have a career now, left my career behind. And she was amazing. I mean, she started to do shop fitting and she was amazingly successful. She started to work for some fashion designers and ended up doing depart- whole departments in Harrods and Harvey Nichols and Bond Street. But, you know, I saw the back end of it. She was working, like, on drawings in her bedroom with this big, like, easel in her bedroom. Nobody knew what was going 
everyone behind the scenes, taking us to school and then going to work. And I, you know, I kind of, from that, I think I got this kind of feeling that I needed always to be able to support myself. I never wanted this to happen to me where I wasn't able to support myself. Suddenly everything falls apart. What am I going to do? And I was young, so I didn't fully understand what was going on, but I knew that things were not good and mm. it was worrying, but I didn't know how to make it good as a child. So it was a very difficult upbringing in many ways. You know, we didn't have a huge amount of money, but my mother gave me a fantastic education. I went to St. Paul's Girls School, which is a difficult school, you know, to get into, reasonably academic. And I remember one thing there that I think really shaped my career, which was Dalton Week, where they have no lessons. They give you a topic and you have to choose what you want to do with this topic. So my topic was art and I had to choose something. I would go around galleries and talk about how people depict certain things in art. And I chose death. I think they're quite shocked at that. Yeah. <laughs> my whole thing was like how people depict death in art. And I was obsessed with it. I went out all these galleries and then I wrote this whole folder about it. I suppose that was the first way of, I really like writing a book. I really enjoyed that. Um, even though like book writing didn't come until much later. Because um, you'll see, I didn't start my career anything to do with children or books. It was a very different career. Yeah. Gosh, that's amazing. So actually you had very strong women role models in your life that, that I'm sure were kind of influenced into you being that person today. Well, she, went on, she went on to actually open an antique shop and we went to the flea market in Paris and I went to help her, you know, buy things and she would take old pieces of iron and balustrades and, and she'd make them into beautiful coffee tables. She was very creative and she would have like, you know, amazing, it was an amazing shop. It was beautiful. She worked very hard, but she still wanted to be a good mum. And, you know, yeah, I think I learned a lot from my mother. And she's now 96. She had her 96th birthday yesterday. And she's really got all her faculties. It's unbelievable. And she runs circles around me. I have to lie down in a dark room to be with her. Because she's got so much energy. It's unbelievable. And if I'm like that when I'm 96, I'll be very happy. But yes, I think your parents and the role model you have definitely filters down to the child. And I see that with my own children who've all become little entrepreneurs in their own right. Yes. So your both your parents essentially were entrepreneurs and went on to have their own businesses. And, and that's what you've done. That's what your children come. I always think the apple never falls far from the tree. And that's... Well, I'm unemployable. Let's be honest. Like that. <laughs> Somebody who's unemployable and can't get a job anywhere. You know what I hear? A lot of entrepreneurs say that, that no one else would hire me. So I have to sort of work for myself. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the intention growing up? I guess you're seeing a lot from your own mother, but did you always imagine that you were going to be this working mother, this entrepreneur? Did you think that you actually were going to be a stay-at-home mother? Once you got married and decided, okay, we want to start a family, what was the life that you expected to have at that stage? Well, my career after I left school was music. And all through my school years, I was was a harpist and I sang, did a lot of music. My school was very big in music. We had Gustav Holst as a music master, obviously not when I was alive, and then Vaughan Williams and then this guy called John Gardner. So music was huge, and I ended up becoming a professional musician, which was very hard work, but I did love it. And I toured all over the world and did crazy things like I played Cinderella in pantomime with um, Dennis Wilson, and I played with Boy George and Ruth Forsyth and did lots of TV, and it was an amazing career. I absolutely loved it. But then I guess, like, you know, losing my child, I just didn't think that music was a serious enough career and, and, and it really did change my life. I can't remember the question now. Well, it was more what was the intention of what do you anticipate you oh. would be doing? Obviously, what happened with Natasha then led to a whole new beginning. Children was a big part of what I wanted and it took me a long time to get pregnant. Over two years. 
and eventually I gave birth to a healthy baby girl called Natasha. So I was so happy. It was like my dream. But I was still playing music and I still had a, a big career. I had a recording contract and you know, I was enjoying it. And then one day when Natasha was about three months old, I went into her room and she didn't look quite right. I called a doctor and he gave me this lecture about how first time mothers worry about their children and that she was fine. But I said, like, I don't think she's fine. I think there's something wrong with her. And after a lot of persuasion, I took her to see him. And again, he kind of brushed away the fact that she didn't look quite right. He said, she's fine. Go home, give her some chamomile tea, which I did. And then the next morning, she looked worse. And I took her to another doctor. I was literally on his doorstep in Harley Street. And then he examined her and they said, I've got to go and see another patient. And he left me in the room for like 10 minutes. And I'm thinking like, what, or where is he? And then he came back. He said, I didn't go and see another patient. I tried to get a bed for your daughter at Great Ormond Street Hospital. I think there's something wrong with the brain. But I think she's seriously ill. And like, it was like, from that moment, my whole world literally fell apart. Anyway, we couldn't get her a bed at Great Ormond Street. She eventually went, well, I took her to Great to St. Mary's and they did a lot of tests on her. And at five o'clock in the afternoon, they did a CAT scan on her. And then they took me into a room and in a very matter of fact way told me that she would never be normal again. And they showed me her brain and how it been infected. And they said they couldn't treat her there and that they had to move her to Great Ormond Street Hospital. So we took her in an ambulance to Great Ormond Street Hospital. And the first night she was in an ordinary ward. But the second night she went into intensive care because she had to be put on a ventilator. And then after five days in the hospital, me staying overnight with her every night and wondering what was going to happen, they said that they wanted to have a meeting with us. And I think we both kind of dreaded that meeting. And it was when they said that the thinking part of her brain had gone. What do we want to do? And what do you do? Because it's not, it's no life, is it? There was no choice. Like, and so they put her in a little dress, they put her in my arms, but she didn't die. In fact, three and a half hours later, she still took big breaths. So she was still alive. And it was horrendous. After about four hours, she took her last breath and she died in my arms. I was, <sighs> I was beyond terrible. She looked absolutely perfect and normal. You would not know that she was, she'd passed away. So you're no longer a mother. And all your hopes and dreams. And for me, you know, the time I'd taken to get pregnant, it was horrific. And interestingly, we never really, really got to the bottom of how this happened. But I think how it happened was that somebody had kissed her, had a cold sore, because there was somebody who had been looking after her who had a cold sore. And that when you kiss a child who's that young, it can then cause encephalitis with a herpes infection and I do talk on my Instagram about like don't take your children around when they're very very young and let people handle them and kiss them because they're so vulnerable it's just not necessary let them build up their abilities and you know it was one of those awful freak accidents that I didn't know the cold sore could cause that damage so I lost her and I came back home and there was no child and all her things were in the house and it was a terrible time it was like there was something heavy pressing on my head and I didn't really know what to do and I just, I just didn't know what to do. I just wanted to curl up and die, to be honest. And they offered me counselling. I didn't want counselling. I just want to have another child. And I went to my obstetrician and I said, like, how can I try and get pregnant again? Because that was so long getting pregnant the first time. And he gave me a fertility drug called Clomid. And he said, mm -hmm. like, you may have multiple children. I said, I don't mind. I just need to have another child. And I think that the thing that saved me, and I did say to myself, like, if God doesn't give me another child within three or four months, I'm not going to believe in God anymore. I just felt like, why did this happen? Like, why? Her? Like, not even me. Like, why did this happen to her? But within three months, I was on actually a tennis holiday playing tennis. 
and my period hadn't come. I took a pregnancy test and it showed positive, but I was also bleeding at the same time. So I thought, oh my God, I had no idea I was pregnant. I've been playing tennis like five hours a day. This is going to be a disaster. I've ruined it. And I went to a doctor. He said, no, it's quite common. People can bleed during pregnancy. Anyway, it was fine. It was fine until the very end of the pregnancy when my doctor told me he was going away in hospital. I don't have going on holiday rather. And I was really upset. And eventually I was late and he came back. And I called him from my home when I went into labor. And he told me, like, it'll be a long time and stay at home. So I did what he said. And then I got really quite bad pains quite close together. And I called him again, couldn't get a hold of him. And eventually I went upstairs to get my things because my water's broke. And the head came up. <clears throat> I was shouting to my husband, I think I'm having the baby. And of course, he doesn't believe me. He comes upstairs and the head's blue. And he didn't tell me until later. He thought the baby was dead. We don't know very much about like birthing because I'm a <laughs> so I didn't know what it was like when I gave birth to Natasha. And then I got on all fours, and eventually the baby was born, but still attached by the cord. And for two and a half hours, I was attached by the cord to the baby. No one came, and there was a lot of pain actually, and a lot of blood. And I was just so worried I would lose a second child. The thought of losing another child after I'd lost one one year previously was terrible. Luckily. I couldn't get my baby close enough to suck the breast or anything like that because the cord wasn't long enough, but we wrapped the baby in a towel and then an ambulance came, but they weren't allowed to move me because I still attached to the baby. And then another doctor came from another hospital because we'd called the hospital. And then eventually I went to the hospital and my doctor turned up, but it was a bit late by then, <laughs> to say the least. Thank God there were no complications because if the cord had been around the neck or anything wrong with the child, we would not have known what to do, to be honest. And thank goodness that my... My husband had been to one antenatal class, so he had a little bit of knowledge about, you know, the placenta and all of that. But a doctor did come in time to cut the cord, because I don't think we would have done that. <laughs> that was beyond our medical skills. And I remember giving him a midwif midwifery certificate for what he did. <laughs> um, but that was Nick. And Nick was a healthy, great baby. And the interesting thing is, I probably had more pain on all my other births. When I think about the pain, it wasn't as bad as the pain I had when I had, when I gave birth to the doctor. So something good came out of it. Never the worry and the stress and the thought of losing the child was awful. But that was the birth of Nicholas and he was the catalyst for changing my life. To be well, honest. exactly. And I mean, honestly, I, I, I don't know how you had the strength to sort of recover from from going through what you did with Natasha and and so pleased that you you were able to have a, a healthy baby so soon after because I, I can't imagine the trauma that would have come from you know a, a another struggle to then get pregnant and as you said it's beyond I can't even explain how you feel because it's just incomprehensible just drag yourself around it's the most awful feeling that the one thing is that we'll have a bad life is nothing can ever be as bad as that in fact my father broke that same year so it was doubly bad oh, and I didn't know I lost the child for a while because I didn't want to add to his worries so it was a bad time but having Nicholas really really like oh it was an absolute dream I had a child and he was a difficult child he was a very difficult sleeper and an impossible eater wow so that was really what got me into the career I have but I never thought that it would become a successful career. It was just something that I did as my legacy to Natasha and to help Nicholas become strong. Yes. 
walk us through how it really started. You know, you've got Nicholas, your beautiful baby boy, and obviously you just want to make sure that everything going into his body is going to be kind of the best possible stuff for him. Your business didn't start overnight. In fact, it was, as you said, a slower start than maybe some businesses. So walk us through what that journey looked like. So when it came to weaning him, he was very difficult. He'd eat a bit of fruit. And he just wouldn't eat. I, you know, I, I didn't understand how such a small person would be so stubborn. And I remember we were in France and I went to see a doctor. It was on something else, but then he took out this French recipe book and it had things like artichokes and weird things in it. And I was thinking like, I'd looked at other recipe books for children's food and baby food and they were just so bad, the recipes, and so bland. I wasn't surprised that the children didn't want to eat them. I didn't really like what was in the jars. So it gave me the idea of like, I would create recipes. I love to cook. It was an absolute passion of mine, cooking. Love to eat. And I just started making up recipes for Nicholas. And I remember one recipe when he wouldn't eat chicken. And I made these very small chicken apple balls, like it was chicken thigh, which is twice as rich and iron as the breast. It's really good for you. And then I added a little bit of chopped onion and some herbs, breadcrumbs, and I made it taste really good. I put it all into a food processor, rolled it into small balls and baked them in the oven. And from that day on, he loved chicken. I put apple with it. He loved apple. And I thought if I put apple into the chicken, that might get him to eat it. And it did. And then I started to run a playgroup because it's very isolating. We didn't have Instagram or Facebook, any of that when I started. He was born in 1988. And so I started a playgroup. It was called Babes in the Wood, I live in St. John's Wood. And I got all my friends to come and I got them to invite their friends. And on day one, we had 70 parents and loads of babies. So it was really lovely to have this community. And I was just going around like asking the other parents, like, well, how's your child's eating habits? And most of them had children who were very very difficult. So the next week I bought my recipes and gave them out to other parents. And the next week and the next week. And then they started asking me like, what other recipes have you got? And then after a few months, they all said to me, you should write a book about feeding children because your recipes are amazing. Our children now eat. And I thought about it. I thought, I can't even type. How am I going to do this? And then I thought, what a great legacy to Natasha to write a book about feeding children and help other children. That was my motivation. And so I started to go up and down the country interviewing all the pediatricians, nutrition experts, you know, pediatric allergy specialists. And you know how complicated it was because they often disagreed with each other on like very basic things like when do you give peanut butter or when do you introduce meat, chicken and fish? So it's a very hard book to write to get to the actual scientific research on it. Because this wasn't your background. You didn't have a background in nutrition or anything. So you were learning all of this firsthand. Yeah, I was learning. It took me two and a half years before I wrote that, finished that book. I could do the recipes, but I wanted to understand that what I was putting into the recipes was the right food for the child at that right age. So I went back to Great Ormond Street and I started to work with the head of nutrition and the Institute of Child Health, which is attached to Great Ormond Street and does all the research into feeding. Because obviously they have lots of children, they have lots of feeding problems, allergy problems. So I got to the basis of absolute truthful research based on scientific fact. And that was why my book was very different. But it was also different because everyone said at that time, babies only like bland food. And I'm thinking, I don't like bland food. And my son doesn't like bland food. So where do they get this from? So I started to have like, because I had all these children in the playgroup, I'd bring them back to my home, like 20 of them. And I would give them the chicken and apple balls, a bit of onion and garlic, apple. Or I would give them something really bland, like mashed potato and boiled chicken. They didn't like that, but they loved the chicken and apple balls. And they loved the my first curry. And I'm thinking like, well... That's 20 children. I'll try another 20 children, another 20 children. And eventually I'm thinking, they all prefer the food that tastes good. Why wouldn't they? And then I discovered, talking to all the scientists, that the more variety you give children in the early years, the less likely it is that they will be fussy. Mm. So I started to make up recipes that had garam masala and 
garlic and herbs. And my book was all about introducing flavor and also introducing, and this was way before its time, I said, you should give peanut butter to, to children from six months. But everybody was giving it at one year. And the incidence of peanut allergy was going higher and higher. But, wow. but the Institute of Child Health told me, no, we need to give it early. But that hadn't really filtered through to the general public. So it was pretty much before its time. Anyway, the book I finished, I wrote it from cover to cover. And then I had competition amongst all the archaeologists in London to design food people illustrations. And I chose somebody. And then I sent it to 15 publishers. Some of them never replied, and the ones that did reply just said no. And that's because it couldn't have chosen a worse subject to write a book, because no book on feeding children had ever done well commercially, so no publisher wanted to publish it. So I thought I spent two and a half years like writing this book, and like, what am I going to do? So I was just talking to everybody about like this book I'd written, and there was someone I played tennis with, and he knew a book packager. So book packages put books together and then sell them to publishers. You get terrible royalty, and you make no money out of it. But I thought, well... I might as well do this because I can't get a publisher. And they sold it to Simon & Schuster, which is a very big publisher in America. Then eventually they sold it to um, Random House, which is one of the publishers I sent it to, which said no in the first place. Wow. And it got published in 1991 and it sold out in three months. And everybody thought it was a fluke. It got republished and it sold out. And it became the second best-selling non-fiction hardback book of all time. I I couldn't be a literary agent, by the way. The only good thing I did was I only signed a one-book deal with that particular book packager and I ended up working with Penguin Random House and now I've written it's actually 50 books now and I love oh my gosh. I love developing recipes and I love the fact that people are using the recipes and the children enjoying them and now we have a huge social media and you know people like post recipes that their children are eating and enjoying and I'll post a recipe up on the same day like 10 people will send me pictures of having made that recipe and giving it to their child it's a very like instant kind of business I think social media has really been amazing for us I'm very involved I post mostly myself on Instagram I love it and you just meet so many people and you're in touch with all the parents who are you know giving their children your food and making such an impact yeah and, and I know that the food that they're giving them is not only just delicious and they enjoy it it's really doing the children good and I'm helping them to understand that actually fruit and vegetables are all very good but now that a lot of people are starting weaning at six months, which is later than I, w- I weaned at four months, because in those days you did. You can't just give fruit and vegetables for a long time. You've got to move on to like the iron-rich foods, the essential fatty acids. Those are really important critical nutrients. So I explain how you do that. And I think, you know, there's a lot of, still a lot of like not the right information out there. Mm-hmm. Some people think like food is just for fun in the first year, but milk alone will not give your baby what they need from six months. So it's very important what you give them. It's incredible. So yeah, so I mean, I think that my legacy is helping children to have really good quality nutrition. Yes. And you know, a lot of us will die from a diet-related disease, but if you can instill a good eating habit in your child, your child will live longer. And that is probably the type of food they'll eat for the rest of their life. They're not going to, you know, go from McDonald's to chicken nuggets and pizzas to eating good food it's going to be very difficult to get them to break that habit now's the time yeah i mean you can because you can make your own healthy junk food there are ways it's never too late but it's easier if you start well of course i've already been handed your book my son is three months and i think that's why your story with natasha sort of just hit me so hard having a, a baby that exact age but i just think it's incredible what you've done from it and i guess It's so successful and to the surprise of the publisher who had never had a book of that kind be so successful. Why do you think it was? Because is it a gap in the market? Is it complete luck? Is it timing? Is it the fact that you were 
working more hours or more passionate about the subject? Why were you more successful than someone else that had attempted a a recipe book for babies? Well, my skill is in developing recipes. Even when I was playing the harp, I used to have like quartets and I would cook for them. So I was good at making recipes taste good. And when you have a baby and you can't add salt, it's quite difficult to make something taste good. But I found ways and I worked really hard uh, because I was a mother who'd lost a child where the child wouldn't eat. So it came from the heart. And I think that was the big driving force behind that book, that I cared so much about it. I didn't do it to make money. I did it to give Nicholas a good diet. All the children in the playgroup would use this book. My mom might buy a copy. I never thought it would like sell like 5 million copies. But I worked so hard on those recipes. I cared so much. I cared that all of the advice I was giving was based on some kind of research and not just old wives' tales. And, you know, I worked hard on that book every day of my life until it got published. And I think that there was no book on the subject that was good. There were very few books anyway on feeding babies. Certainly no books that where the recipes were delicious and the parents could eat them as well. And I also decided to do meal planners because I knew that it was a worry, like how much milk do you give and when do you introduce the chicken? You know, I wanted to make, make it really easy to follow because I think parents get quite anxious about like, am I doing the right thing? So I wanted to make it easy for them to realize like at six months, this is what you can give. At seven months, this is what you can give. This is how you cut the food so the baby doesn't choke. This is like how you make the finger foods. This is how long you steam a carrot for so it's soft. It was really very well thought out. And there was a gap in the market, but not just a gap in the market. It was it was my kind of my legacy to Natasha. And in fact, it's been the most successful project I've written. That's still my first book. Although I've obviously it so many times it's had about 20 different printings of it it's been sold in 25 countries it's still my best-selling book I've never been able to write a book more successful than that book it's interesting and there's been so many offshoots from it as well it's not just the books that you've done and so things for you from a business perspective really start ramping up you you know you've got your first book you eventually get your publishing deal it becomes the best-selling book all of a sudden it opens up these opportunities and for you uh, a whole new career that you probably didn't anticipate but I did plan it in a way because I planned writing because I wanted to be a mom and I wanted to stay at home and look after my children, especially after losing a child. I wanted to be present. I knew at the back of my mind that one day I wanted to have food in supermarkets. But I knew that if I did that at that time, I couldn't be a full-time mom. When I thought, I don't want to miss out on those early years. I want to be there. I think especially because I'd lost a child. I so love the fact I had, and I had two more children in fairly quick succession. So you've got three. So how are you doing it? What is going on behind the scenes for you personally to be able to yeah. have the right balance that, that was right for you to be present, but also sort of have this opportunity? At the time they were asleep, I was working, but I still like, I taught them to Suzuki violin. Of course, I love music. So that was a big thing to do because it's, it's very time consuming. I took them to Kumon Mass. I took them to dancing classes. I took them to tumble tops. I took them everywhere. And I was I was there. I was I was a very present mum. And I think being a mum is probably the most important role in any woman's life. But I always knew at the back of my mind, I'm building the foundations for something that I can do later on in life. But I need to build it now. Otherwise, I might not do it later on. I want to make sure that I'm a working mum. I always knew that, I needed more than just being a mom. I needed, you know, I'm very driven. It's the education I had at St. Paul's, like whatever you want to do, you can do. And I think that's a very important thing to to believe in, to believe in yourself, to have the passion in yourself. So as soon as the children were at full-time school, something happened that was the amazing catalyst and just dropped in my lap. And I probably wouldn't have done it that soon. 
but Marks and Spencer's called me up out of the blue and said, would I help them to develop their food range for children? They didn't have one. So my first job was to buy whatever I could in Marks and Spencer's and see if any of the things they were already making were suitable for children. So that was great, just going around the shop, but literally someone else paid for all that food. I discovered that like none of the things were quite right. They all had the wrong nutrition in them. And then I headed up a whole group of people to develop the food range for Marks and Spencer's. I worked with them for two years. It was very interesting. And that was just right timing. So the kids were at school and you felt like you had a bit more time to dedicate to the business at this point. Luck. Maybe you make your own luck, but then there's also luck that comes into it. My name wasn't on it. It was Michael Marks and Spencer. They did a few articles about me helping, but that was about it. Then I moved on after two years and I worked with Boots. And that did have my name on it. It was a joint product, myself and Boots. And it was not just food for babies. It was my books and it was a whole range of equipment for making baby food. And that was really successful. And they wanted me to stay exclusive to them. But I thought, I don't want to be exclusive to Boots. I want to go into supermarkets. So I used my royalties to find a consultant and they helped me find a factory that would make. And I decided to do not baby food, but toddler food, age one to four. And we found this factory in York, who I still work with now. And we developed a chilled range. And it was just me. And I went to Sainsbury's. I don't know anything about the supermarkets. I shared them my range. I went to several other supermarkets, obviously, but Sainsbury's took it in 2006. And it went on shelf and it sold out. It went on shelf again, it sold out. And then we're now in Sainsbury's, Tesco, Iceland, Morrison's, Waitrose, We've just gone into Marks and Spencer's again. We're in all supermarkets. At this point, is it the fact that your name's on it and you now, a lot of people, a lot of mothers recognize your name and obviously there's a lot of trust associated with it? Or were there just not these things on the shelf that mothers could grab and go at the time? There was nothing for that age group. There were, right. uh, meals, the meals in Marks and Spencer were four years plus. The salt levels and all the other levels were not right for young children. So my range was like, after the baby food, what do you give? Like a lot of mm. people, like, they have to cook or they're giving chicken nuggets and pizza because they've got very fussy children. So we developed things like a chicken tikka masala. And everybody's all like, wow, that's not going to work. It's our best-selling meal in chilled and in frozen. Like, you wouldn't think of giving that to a child. No. actually, think about it, because you can't really add much salt. If you're adding a bit of curry powder and garam masala and all that flavor, you're actually making a very tasty meal without having to add the salt. So curry is very good for little ones. And they like it. And it's a sweet curry. And then we do like a hidden vegetable spaghetti bolognese with like six vegetables blended into it. And the meals were delicious. and. Yes, you might buy it because it's my name. If you've used my books, you might have made one of my chicken potato pies. It's taking you, you know, three quarters of an hour to finish making them all. If you made several of them when you can buy it now. So. Mm. so you've got the convenience. And I think that once your child likes something and they, they are really, really tasty, you'll buy it again and again. And, you know, we have a turnover now of millions on our meals. Then the other stroke of luck, which came completely out of the blue. You know how people like want to go into America? I never really wanted to go to America because I felt it was kind of a graveyard for brands. So many people have failed, even Jamie Oliver. The largest frozen food company in Australia, and my books were really popular in Australia, called me up and said, we want to do a children's food range. Would you work on it with us? So I flew out to Australia and we developed 33 products for Coles, one of the biggest supermarkets in Australia. And we launched it one year later. And I have a business that's worth 18 million Australian dollars in Australia. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's just in every single supermarket, Coles, Woolworths, Aldi. I mean, it's incredible. I go out there, you know, several times a year and, you know, I develop the meals and it's great. I mean, they're a fantastic company. They have fabulous chefs that can, you know, take my, my recipe, scale it up and make it delicious. And after I made all the chilled meals, I decided that I said to Tesco, I want to do a frozen range. But when you're developing a range to get a manufacturer is actually quite difficult because unless you can 
tell them you're going to be getting big volumes from day one. They don't want to work with you. The best frozen food manufacturer, and I have to say, like in the first couple of years where I was making frozen food, I really struggled because they kept on not making the recipes how they should. They would like add too much lemon or they would, they would just change them. It was very difficult. But then eventually when we got into all the different supermarkets for frozen, or well, nearly in all of them now, I went to the manufacturer that I really wanted to go to, which was Ben Carey Foods, now become Pilgrims. They're the biggest frozen food manufacturer, I think, in the world. They make 45% of frozen food in the UK. And now they make our meals and they are fantastic. They're automated. Their chefs are incredible. The quality of their ingredients is amazing. And I just... I'm so lucky to have such incredible manufacturers. One thing making the recipe, but the other thing is you've got to have a manufacturer that cares about the quality of the recipe and the ingredients and wants to make it like it tastes like a homemade meal. You're giving it over to someone else to execute, but it's got your name onto it. So if your standards slip and the next time they buy the meal, it's not good, you're going to lose your customer. And I care about it so much. So I buy the meals every week. I taste them. You know, I go up there. I went to, it's in Ireland, this, this factory. And now we're looking at developing some new meals. They make an amazing lasagna. And yeah, it's really exciting. And, you know, I call him my chef. He's not really my chef, but I work with him very closely. And he has a child and he's just as passionate about it, this guy at Pilgrim Foods, about making these foods taste fantastic without adding too much salt. And we are now, you know, the biggest in children's food in this country. And I would not have done this, I don't think, had Marks and Spencer's not called me out, because I would have thought, me, Annabelle Carmel, how can I compete with the likes of Heinz? I, mean, I can't, like, they've got huge marketing budgets. How am I ever going to... But they believed in you. Someone there must have sort of spotted you and believed in you and believed that there was huge opportunity. Yeah, it's the small companies that will, will take a leap. You know, I'll make a chicken tikka masala. I mean, I will not just stay with the standard meals for kids. I'll try something. And we're looking at a chicken satay that has some nuts in it in there, which is really tasty. It's delicious. I guess you didn't plan to go into Marks and Spencer's before they presented you with an opportunity. And then obviously that became the catalyst to getting into other big food retailers do you think the lack of plans sort of helped you because you you were more open to saying yes to opportunities that were presented to you versus I don't know some people have such a fixed this is my business plan and actually it closes doors because you if someone deviates from that you, you don't necessarily think it's the right thing for you to do I think it is good to have a plan I mean I had a plan to go into food but I think you'll do your research I mean I did know there was nothing out there and you can't just do it from your computer you've got to go out there I always say like if you want to open a restaurant you've got to go and sit in a restaurant in the area where you want to open it see how many people come in what they eat otherwise all you know is what the rent and the rates are and what your salary costs are but how do you know how much money you're going to make in an evening you know if you want to open a coffee shop and I went around and I looked at the quality of food I also knew that however good my product was there was a price at which above that price people wouldn't buy it it had to be volume market it had to be affordable we're in iceland you know we're going into asda we're in morrison's you know we feed every child whatever income factor they are because these meals are not expensive and i think that's really important and even if you can't buy my meals you can get meals like recipes from my instagram one of the things we've been working on actually uh, and we launched it in november which has been a very big project for me we already had an app, but I completely changed the app. And it now has like 700 recipes on it. it as a digital weaning course. It's everything you need about weaning your child, feeding your child. Family meals are quick and easy. And we launched that and it's been very successful. It's one of the best selling food and drinks apps in this country. It sells here all over the world. I'm going to do a Chinese which is going into China. Apps are fantastic for recipes because you've got it in your pocket. And when you're in the supermarket, oh, I want to make something out of chicken. You put chicken in and all these recipes come up. You get all your ingredients and your shopping list. It's so easy. 
everything's about convenience now. And that's just the ultimate convenience. It's fantastic. And we add to it every week, new recipes every single week. And I'm very proud of that app and how well it does. And yeah, and people love it. So that's a, that's a big project for me. I want to go back to something that you said before, which was one of the most important roles for you was to be a mother and to be a present mother, particularly in those early years. And obviously, and you mentioned you were doing things kind of evenings and weekends to try and make it work. Did you sort of give yourself the permission, even though you had, you, you, clearly there was big potential because you had your book and it sold out and became one of the best sellers, but yet you were sort of prioritizing your kids over all of that. Were you not worried at the time of, if I do this, what if nothing comes of the book or the potential or the opportunities? Or how did you sort of see that time in your life of prioritizing kids? And, and how present were you? Were you able to be at every school pickup and, or nursery or were they even in nursery? How, how did you balance it at the time? I was a full-time mother and I had a career. It is possible. Is it an evening weekend thing? How, you know, when, when are you finding the time to do the career bit? Because the mother thing is all consuming. Yeah, it is. But writing was okay because you could do it at home. There were always times. And I used to work very late at night. I go to bed at two o'clock in the morning. This is normal for me because I find that's a quiet time. So when they were in bed, there was, there was hours to work. And I would spend a lot of time making recipes anyway for the children. And that was part of my career. So the recipes I made for the kids to eat or if I taught them to cook went into the book. So it's kind of my real life and my career were entwined. And I think that's important that you do something that in a way fits in with being a mum. It did. But you've got to follow your passion. You've got to figure out what you, who you really are, what you love and have the courage to do that. And I think the only courage you really need is the courage to follow your dream. And I did. I want to be the number one author in children's food. I want to feed children with the meals that I create, whether it's from my website free, whether it's from my app, whether it's something they don't cook and they buy in the supermarket. I know that my recipes are probably the best recipes anywhere in the world for children because I've spent my whole life only feeding children and I test everything on kids. And now we have a nursery catering company. So we supply to over 100 nurseries all over the country. We have a 12,000 square foot state-of-the-art kitchen where we make food. We've now just started, as of today, supplying hospitals with food. So that it's always, there's new things to do. And the company that I'm working with, because I have a partner, it's called the Nursery Catering Company. They have a school with 180 children. So can you imagine the testing that I can do? So every recipe that I develop for a nursery, I can test for 180 children straight away. I mean, it's just fantastic. And nursery food is so bad. Yes, you can't spend too much money on it. There's an absolute budget, but you can still make it taste good. Well, that's my next thing. I went around nurseries and then the amount of food that was getting in the bin is absolutely terrible. It's just incredible how you're continuing to develop. So you've got the app, you've, you're going into nurseries. I know you're in hotels as well. You're, you're really across so much. Do you not just want to put your feet up? <laughs> do, you, do you not just kind of go, I've made it. I've created everything I want. I just want to enjoy the life that I've built for myself. What What is continuing to drive you now? Because you've got the success. So my daughter works with me. So I reap the benefits of being a working mum because she's in my office every day and not somewhere mm. else. I see her all the time. My other daughter has a career where she helps brands, so I can help her too. And I love what I do. It is the most fun job. I couldn't think of anything I would rather do. Yes, I work in hotels. So I work at Sunny Resort, which is probably the best hotel to go to with young children. It's like seven amazing hotels all in one amazing place in Greece. And I develop all the menus for all the hotels. And I go there once a year and 
have the best time. Like when their Halloween did a massive Halloween party dressed up as a witch. I mean, it's so fun. It's like going on holiday, but even better because you meet the staff, you meet the people, you do this party, you taste the food. I mean, it's, and you get paid for it. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> I love doing charity work as well. So I do all the food at the Jamira Carlton Tower in London, but I was asked to present an award at a charity event. This is nearly 10 years ago. And it was the health charity of the year. And the charity that won was called Julia's House. I'd never heard of Julia's House. So I asked them afterwards, like I asked them to tell me a bit about the charity. And it's a hospice for children. And they only had one at the time in Dorset. And I thought like, oh, that's great. You know, I'd lost my child. So I went to visit them. But I thought me going there on my own wouldn't be very exciting. But I've got three dogs. So I took them all there. And the children had the best time with the dogs you know, and all of that. And then I thought like, they really rely on private funding. They get very little government funding. So I'd been to a few events at Downing Street. There was Samantha Cameron, like David Cameron was prime minister at the time. And she'd had, she had a child who went to hospice. So I wrote to her and she immediately wrote back. She said, oh, I use all your books. Like, I, that's a great idea. You can have, yeah, you, you know, there's, these are the dates and you can have it at six o'clock on a Tuesday for like two hours and I'll come and give a little talk. So then I thought I'll invite everybody I know or I can find, I didn't know them, in Dorset. And one of them was Guy Ritchie. So I invited him. He came and he got so enamored with the charity and everything they did. He then had an event with David Beckham and Robert Downey Jr. And we raised one and a half million pounds and they opened another hospice in Wiltshire. So there's two hospices. And now they've come back because they're doing an art event and they've got all these amazing balloon dog sculptures. They're really big. And I found for them lots of artists to paint them. And after this um, podcast with you, I'm going to the Jumeirah Carlton Tower because I've got them to do a big event in the hotel where they're going to have like 30 of these like amazing dog sculptures come and they're going to go up for auction. Each of them has been sponsored for £6,000 and then the money will go to the hospice. And I think that having a career like this and being able to help charities like this is really important. And, you know, that charity has grown into two hospices and I love the fact that you can help them. Oh my God, just incredible. And I do the same with the family. Like often people say to me, I've got a small business, would you do a giveaway? And yeah, I will because... You know, it's hard to get a platform and you go on my platform, we've got like 430,000 Instagram followers and you do a giveaway and you get like 10,000 people enter it and then they'll have to join and follow that other very small Instagram site and they'll get followers to come and I can help other people. I mean, it's very generous of you to leverage your own, you know, platform to help so many people. But I love to do that. And lots of people work for me have ended up, you know, starting their own business or going to work for big companies. So, you know, they started off with me and we trained them. And so like, yeah, I love that fact. And like, I had no business training at all. I didn't know what I was doing. But when you're in business, you have to know about everything. You have to know about rent rates, like, you know, law about employment. And I won businesswoman of the year. Like how I won that, I have no idea. To me, it's obvious why you won that. But it must, you, you're probably thinking, well, I've just learned as I've gone on. I did. I mean, I learned music. I mean, like, it's not really good business training. But probably the best way to learn something is, is to do, to do it. And I was thrown into it. I think, you know, it's easy to look at someone like you who's so successful with the accolades that you've got and assume it's just really been easy and you've just sort of breezed through from opportunity to opportunity. And I'm sure it's not been easy. It's never easy. What were some of the kind of biggest lessons that you've, you know, for those that are want to start something themselves, what are the biggest lessons that you've learned or the kind of big tough times that you've had to navigate through? I think three years ago was the worst time in my entire career when I had a, a very well-known manufacturer very big, worth billions, literally. And they were just not really like working with me properly. I don't know why, like cancel meetings, cancel phone calls. And I was going, 
quite worried about it. And then I have a competitor who makes food very similar to our food. And I'd heard, strangely enough, that they were moving. I didn't believe it, though. They were moving to the manufacturer that I had. But, like, they make exactly the same food as me. Like, you wouldn't do that. And then I rang up the managing director and I asked him. And, of course, I thought he'd say no. And he said, oh, actually, we are talking to them. I said, like, but they're my main competitor. We've spent four years with you competing against them. And then I found out that they'd already started working with them and they hadn't told me. Oh, my God. It was a nightmare. And they, they told me that. I, they, no, they had already told me, actually, that they couldn't make for me anymore. Sorry, I left that bit out. And I found out the reason they wouldn't make for me anymore was because it was starting to make for my competitor already make for my competitor. It was a nightmare. So what do you do? I sued them. Mm. Because it was wrong what they did. And they knew it was wrong. And in the end, I won. But you don't really win because you, you, it's, it's, it takes up your life and you're talking to lawyers and it was an absolute nightmare. It was an absolute nightmare because I thought I was going to lose my business. And all the things that I'd worked for, I could just see it all disappearing because I had no manufacturer and they were going to kick me out in June and it was a nightmare. And obviously that's such a huge part of your business. I got through it, but it was probably one of the worst things that ever happened to me. And I said that at the time. I said, I said to the manager director, I remember saying to him, do you have a heart? Because what you've done is you've destroyed literally everything I've worked for all my life. And you probably think I haven't worked this hard to, for a manufacturer to ruin things for you and... Your own manufacturer. <laughs> it's like, tell me what you're doing at least. Don't do yeah. it behind my back. Oh my God, it was terrible. So yeah, things happen. Things happen and like, you cannot expect that to happen, but you have to deal with it. It's part of running a business. It's not, you know, when you work for yourself, the buck stops with you. And, and unfortunately, all of this kind of falls, falls on you to have to deal with. Yeah. When somebody sticks a knife in your back, it's like, it's, it's terrible. And I, and I, it, was, it was an awful time. Very difficult we nearly lost our business, but we've come back from it. Yes. And diversified, you know, the apps launched since and all these kind of brilliant things have come from it. I wish I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. I know how busy you are, so I sadly can't. But I do want to finish with one final question because you hold so much wisdom that can help so many people, but specifically my audience of ambitious women. What do you say to some of those women who strive for your level of success? you know, they've got multiple children or, or just children to juggle alongside. I'm kind of frustrated to even ask you this question because I, I don't feel like a man would ever be asked this, you know, how, how do you achieve what you've achieved with children? But I ask this because I genuinely want to know how you do it. And I know that others will too. So what would be the advice that you would give to them? So I think there's a lot of guilt put on women. Are you going to be there for your child? But you mustn't feel that because you can give so much to a child by being a working mother, like the way I've, I've now mentored my daughters and one of them works with me and they'll inherit my business and it will carry on. So guilt is a very negative thing and you've got to get over it. So you've got to make your own rules up. I want to be there at five o'clock and I'm always going to be there at fast time. But you can be with your children and not totally present as well. You can be on your phone. So when you're with your children and even now, if children want to come and talk to me, you know, as they get older, they don't talk to you that often. So as soon as they want to talk to you, whatever you're doing, your business call has to be put on hold. Whatever you're doing on your computer has to be put on hold because they are very important. But on your deathbed, you're going to worry about, you know, did I get into Asda or was I a good mother? You're going to worry about, was I a good mother? At least I would. So I think that guilt, you've got to forget about guilt. And someone once said to me, it was actually Justine who ran Mum's Net. She said, like, when she left the house, the child would say, oh, mummy, you know, please, can you stay with me? Why are you going? And like, you know, and she feel guilty about going to work. But then she said, like, the older child would probably say to me, mommy, why does daddy go out to work and you stay at home? Like, you know, like, 
cooking and stuff. Why aren't you doing other stuff? So you can have a win with children, to be honest. Fine, like somebody else will help look after them if you can't be there the whole time. But yeah, it's about the guilt. It's also about very, a lot of women have had good careers before they've had children. And then they lose their confidence because they've taken three or four years out of it and they've been present as mums because that's what they wanted to do, which is absolutely fine, but they still have the ambition to go back into the workplace. And I think they need to realize that they've learned so many skills from being a mother. You've learned how to juggle and how to multitask because you do that all the time with children. You've learned amazing people skills because you've got an irrational toddler to look after. It's impossible. It's so difficult. And you don't waste time. And I think women are amazing employees. I employ a lot of women. A lot of women who've been on maternity leave twice come back to me and they're amazing. They're fantastic. And they work just as hard as they did before they had kids. And they don't waste their time because they want to go back and be a mom. And I think often women, it's the confidence that is as important as the competence and that they've got belief in themselves. And that's what holds you back because women are incredible creatures. They give birth, they look after children and they work. You know, I I still do more household chores than my partner. You know, I do all the cooking and all the shopping and look after the house. If anything needs repairing, I have to do all that. You know, life is still not 50-50 not in my household. And I'm sure it's true. And I suppose until it is 50-50, it's going to be more difficult for women because they have to give birth, they breastfeed and all of this. So it is hard, but you can be incredibly successful. And, you know, I did it. Women do it. And have faith in yourself because you are an incredible creature. We are. And, you know, it's, it's the courage to do what you want and follow the passion that you have. And if you have a job that you're not very happy with, leave it or go down to three days a week if you need money and the other two days start working on something else so you can move to what you really want to do. Work is such a big part of your life. You've got to enjoy it. You're not only impacting children, but your story alone is an inspiration to so many women and aspiring entrepreneurs and incredible advice. You've certainly proven that it is possible. And you know what? It is hard work. It's a huge amount of dedication and consistency and time. And I think we're quite used to instant gratification now. People just assume everything's an overnight success, but it's not. It's a real process to get to where you've got to. They say it's not a full-time job. It's not a part-time job. It's a lifestyle. You live and breathe it. My life and my work are like, you, you can't separate them. It's impossible. Well, that's the thing. There's no work-life balance. They are, you are one person. There's not two sides. If I'm not working, I'm probably like with my children or with my dogs or cooking. But cooking is like, like it's my enjoyment as well. But I, I enjoy it. I love it. Like on weekends, I work all the time in the evenings come back from the office and I work but I'm not I'm not not enjoying it I'm loving it well that's the thing it doesn't probably feel like work because you're doing it and I think the, the thing that I take from this is it's okay to take the time to be the mother that you want to be and not be fearful that unless you're doing a hundred percent of both you're going to kind of miss the boat on one of them if you feel compelled to be at home with your children there is still small snippets and time in the day where you can focus on things that you're passionate about but give yourself permission to be that mother that's okay and you can still be wildly successful like Annabelle if you do however hard it's been I have such a driving passion for what I do that I don't think will ever fail because I work so hard I mean I will take on a Tesco and everybody says you'll never win this and I do because they can see in me like I'm driven and I really care yeah well I can feel that just by talking to you (laughs) I'm sort of I'm so drawn into what you're saying and I it's not in any way surprising everything that you've been able to achieve given the person you are and really the thing that's driving you and and Natasha as well and creating that legacy for her 
Oh, Annabelle, thank you so much for your time today, for sharing your wisdom. I know it will help so many people. Your story is a true inspiration. So thank you so much for coming on. Wish you lots of luck with your podcast and you never know where it might lead to. There we go. That was my life. I'm sure it will be your life too. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked this episode, please don't forget to leave me a quick review and subscribe. It helps us reach a bigger audience of women more than you know. And if there is an awesome individual who needs to share their story on this podcast, I would love to hear from you. My details are in the description below. I will see you next week.